All right. Well, just as a quick reminder, because um, it's been a week um, of where we were last time, um, we were talking about Plato and Platonic metaphysics. Um, and when we talk about metaphysics, remember we're talking about that thing or those things which are beyond the physical or past the physical realm. Um, and Plato held to what we would call an idealism or what we now call a platonic ideal of metaphysics, um, which basically means everything in this world simply gets its existence or derives its existence from some universal principle that is pre-existent, eternal, has always been. Um, that world Plato calls the world of forms, and we simply are the shadows of said forms. Um, and all this is just big philosophical language basically to say um, there is a distinctively correct and universal way to be human. Um, there is goodness, there is justice, there is wisdom, and these things are not rooted within humanity, but they're rooted beyond and past and outside of humanity. Um, today we're going to talk about the Republic, um, which is Plato's seminal work. If you're going to only read one thing in your life from Plato, read the Republic. Um, has anyone had any experience studying or reading the Republic? You've read the Republic. Did you read it at Penn State? No, at Gettysburg College. At Gettysburg College. Um, the Republic um, is the masterpiece that Plato wrote in his middle period. He has a, an ancient period, a middle period, and a, a beginning period. And most of Plato's great work comes in his middle period. Um, and the Republic has been so important philosophically. Uh, the second book of the Republic, there's 10 books, um, and we have them broken up into 10 books because they were written on ancient papyrus scrolls. And when one scroll would end, you'd have to start another one. So when we discovered Plato's Republic, we broke it up into these 10 chapters, um, which are very disjoint, because you'll be in the middle of a thought on book one, and then all of a sudden you move to book two, and you're like, well, why didn't he just finish that in book one? Well, his scroll just ran out. Um, but book two of the Republic is actually the most written upon piece of philosophy of all of philosophy combined. There's more written on book two than all the, everything that's written on Descartes, everything that's written on Locke and Berkeley and Hume. Um, so it's a wonderful, wonderful dialogue. Um, and the central question of the dialogue is, what is justice? Um, most people are a little bit confused and think that the central question of the dialogue is, what is a just city? Um, because in it, in order to determine what is just, Plato is going to try to find out what makes a just city and then look back and say, if we can find out the definitive characteristics of a just city, we can then find out what makes a just individual. Now, we must remember that last time we were talking about Plato would constantly encounter these sophists or rhetoricians, people that did not hold to this metaphysical standard of reality, that there are absolute principles that are right and wrong. Um, and they just believed that justice was the advantage of the stronger, or justice was determined by the individuals. So the Republic starts with Plato having a discussion, trying to prove that it is actually better to be just than unjust, which would seem like a principle that all of us would hold to. Of course. It's better to be just than unjust. But the interlocutors, the sophists, say, really, why is it better to truly be just than unjust? And they tell a famous story to try to prove their point. They tell the ancient mythological story of Gyges. Anyone familiar with Gyges? They tell the story of the Ring of Gyges. Now, Gyges um, is this mythological character who was a very, very good man, and he was a farmer lowly man, but a good man, worked hard, would bring his offerings to the king every day. And one day he's offering, um, walking over to the king to give his offering, and there's some sort of a 
giant event that happens and the earth opens up, some sort of an earthquake. And the earth splits in half and there's this giant chasm. And Gyges ventures down into the chasm and he gets down and he sees a, some sort of a tomb. And he goes inside the tomb and he sees the skeleton of a man. And on the man's hand, the skeleton of the man, there's a ring. And Gyges decides, well, the guy's dead. Um, he's been down there for God knows how long. I can probably take the ring with no moral qualms. So he takes the ring and he takes it off and he starts wearing the ring. And somewhere along the story, Gyges realized that this ring has some sort of magical power. Um, that the stone on the outside of the ring, when it is turned in towards Gyges' hand, turns Gyges invisible. And I don't quite remember how Gyges figures this out, but it had to be quite an alarming thing for him to figure out that he has this wonderful power. And the story goes on that this nice and good man, Gyges, as soon as he figures out he has this power, no longer goes to just give his sacrifice to the king. This time he goes to give his sacrifice to the king, but right before he does so, he turns the ring inward, turns invisible, kills the king, and rapes the queen. The sophists tell Socrates this story, and they say, most of us would say, Gyges, you're a bad guy. Not a good thing to do. But they said, tell me, Socrates, if you knew for a fact that there was no hammer hanging over your head, if you knew for a fact you could not get caught, if you knew for a fact that your actions would not have any repercussions on you or your family, why would we do what is just instead of doing what is unjust? It's a good question. Um, most of us would say, no, of course I would do the right thing, but have you ever been in the position where you've had unlimited power? Right? Usually we see that the people in the history of the world that have gotten unlimited power did really, really evil things with that power. Right? There's a rare few examples. Right? I was just reading uh, Eric Metaxas's biography of George Washington, and George Washington was one of those great heroes that turned away power. Right? After we won our independence from Great Britain, George Washington could have became the king of America. And his troops actually wanted him to. And he said, no, 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 we don't want that. Ultimate power corrupts, and it corrupts ultimately. And he knew that. Um, but there's rare figures that would do this. And so the sophist asked Socrates, prove to me that justice is something that should be desired above injustice. And even further, why should we not mock the person that chooses to be just? Right? Because if there is no ultimate standard, well, you sh just should be just. You just should be courageous. You just should be wise. Why? If those things don't exist, right, if you're an atheist and the world is nothing but matter, why not be unjust unless the repercussions are going to hurt you individually? So Socrates has to answer this question. And Socrates wants to propose that justice is a virtue. But that just begs the question, well, why should we be just? Because we should be just. So he has to prove that justice is a virtue. And when we say that justice is a virtue, that simply means something that should be desired in and of itself. And there's rare things in this world that actually we would call virtuous. Because most things in this world we don't desire in and of themselves, right? We desire them for ulterior motives, right? Each and every one of us have desires. You might desire a new house. But why do you desire a house? Do you desire it for the house in and of itself? No, you desire the house. Why? Because you think the house will make you happy, right? So we would say happiness is an intrinsic virtue because you desire other things for happiness. Right? You never say, I want happiness so that I can have a car. That doesn't make any sense. But you say, I want a new car so I can be happy. Right? So happiness would be an intrinsic virtue. And Socrates wants to prove that justice itself is a virtue. And the way he's going to do this is he says, it's difficult to say what makes an individual just. 
But it's much easier if we could set out and say, what would make a just society? And if we can find those characteristics in the just society, reflect them back to the individual, we would know what it means to be an adjust individual. So Socrates sets out on this massive theoretical project of creating the first ever utopia. Now he doesn't actually do this in the real world. This is him and Adamantus and Polymarchus talking about what would make a perfect society. And they start to do this. And in the Republic, we have the first ever theoretical discussion of love, the first ever theoretical discussion of what education should be, the first ever theoretical discussion of justice. So it's a jam-packed work. Um, Fascinating. When Plato starts to develop his just society or perfect society, he names it the Republic. And he noticed that there's going to be certain things the society has to have. Um, he says it's going to have to have strong guardians which will rule the society. And he says something that maybe we don't quite understand in this country anymore, but that a society is something that must be defined by its borders. If you don't have someone to defend those borders, that country is not a country. All right, what is America? America is this spot, and over here is Canada. Well, why? Well, that's your border. He says, well, if you don't have someone to defend those borders, then you aren't the thing that you say that you are. So we must have an army of these standing guardians to guard the city. And we must have auxiliaries, and we must have farmers, and we must have merchants, and we must have all these different people. But he says, in order for the city to be perfectly just, not only do we need all these different people, but we need the right people doing the right things. We need to have the people that are meant to be the guardians as the guardians. We need to have the people that are meant to be the merchants as the merchants. He said the height of injustice would be to have the merchants trying to be the guardians and the warriors of the city. So he says we must have some sort of a balance. And what he has in store is mainly three characteristics of people. He calls them the guardians, the warriors, and the auxiliaries. He says the problem with this is there is somewhat of a hierarchy set up here, somewhat of a caste system. Nobody is openly going to say, yep, I'm a merchant. Make me a merchant. No, they want to be a warrior, want to be a guardian. He says mankind has a great hubris to them, and nobody can admit that they have too little wisdom. He says mankind, and Hobbes will later affirm this same idea, he says mankind is very quick and willing to admit certain things. People will admit, well, that person's better looking than me. I can admit that. That guy's stronger than me. But he says it's very, very rare to get anyone to admit, Psh, I have no wisdom. I shouldn't be in charge of any people. He says, because even, even the dumbest students that you have, if you teach, right, or, or the least bright students that you have, will all say, well, I know I got an F on everything in your class, but I'm street smart. No, no, you're not. No, you're not. But everyone, but everyone thinks they have too much wisdom. Um, so Socrates says, if everyone truly believes that they are wise, intrinsically wise, how are we going to determine who gets to be the guardians, who gets to be the warriors, and who gets to be the auxiliaries. Well, this is where Plato institutes what is known as the noble lie. And the noble lie is also called the myth of the mixed metals. Socrates says, in my ideal society, what we are going to do is we are going to propagate a lie. And we are going to teach this to our children from the time they are very young. And we are going to tell them that when Mother Nature, or God, or the spirit of the universe was creating you, she put gold into each one of your souls, or a certain metal, I should say, into each one of your souls. She put gold into the souls of the people who are destined to be warriors. And she put silver into the souls of those who are destined to be the auxiliaries. And then she put bronze into the souls of those that are meant to be the merchants and the farmers. So this way, people couldn't complain and say, that guy chose for me to be a merchant and I was really, really destined to be a warrior. 
And you would say, no, 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 God determined that for you. That's your place. And Plato said the only reason we have to do this, and he says it's a noble lie, because it's a lie that would be for the betterment of all people. It's best if we have people doing what they were designed to do, or what Aristotle would say, following your telos, your purpose in life. So he says, we have to tell people this lie, but even once we tell people this lie, if I go up to, you know, to Kurt and I say, sorry, Kurt, you're a bronze soul, and he can say, well, I still want to be equal to everybody else. So Plato says, if we're going to differentiate all these people into these different castes, we must have some way of communing them together, giving them some sort of a family feel so that they don't start to harbor hatred for one another. So he says, what we're going to have is some sort of a communism in the Republic. We're going to need communal raising of children. No one owns their own child. So when a child was to be born to a woman in this society, it would be taken away immediately and raised by the state. Right, we have some people as proponents of that in our current society. Right? Take your child away from you, raise it by the state. Because that way, what, well, what would be the purpose of this? Why would we want someone to have the state raise our children? Well, because we naturally favor our own, Plato says. Right? You're going to treat your own better than you do somebody else's. Right? And we all do this. And he says, in order to avoid this favoritism, which is an injustice, we must have the state raise everyone. And to get a good feel of family, we should also share in a communal meal. So we have communal raising of children, we have communal meals where we all eat together, and we should share communal housing. So even though the guardians might have a better place in society as far as their job title, they live in the same style house. It's a communal house. They eat the same meals. They're children. They don't even know who their own children are. So they have to treat everyone equally. So he sets up this ideal society. And he says, the, the structure, the core of what he's trying to get at is he says, in order for any society to be just, what we need is balance. What we need is harmony. We need a proper harmony between the bronze souls, the gold souls, and the silver souls. We need balance between them. And he doesn't mean 33% of this, 33% of that, and 33% of the third. He means everyone doing what they were designed to do. He says, if we can get proper balance, if everyone is doing what they were designed to do, the city will be just. It will be best fit to survive attacks. It will be good. Well, at this point, Plato has to say, all right, well, if that's what justice is in the, end of, in the society, if the society is just only when there's proper balance, he says, well, what is it that's going to make an individual just? And this is where he gives his famous chariot analogy. He says an individual is just if and only if he has proper balance within himself. So society is just only if it has proper balance within the people. And the individual is only just when you have proper balance within your soul. And he gives the famous chariot analogy. He actually gives this later on in the Phaedrus as well. Um, and he says every individual soul is like a chariot. And that's my chariot right there. Um, everyone can picture the chariot. You've seen the Ben-Hur movies, right? So you would have on a chariot, you'd have one horse on your left, one horse on your right, and you'd have the charioteer at the top of the chariot. He says, in order for this chariot to go straight, there has to be a balance between the three parts. And he says, your soul has three parts. You have wisdom, you have courage, and you have appetite. He says, every soul has these three parts. But only a just soul has the proper balance between the three. We all want to be courageous. We all want to have appetite so we're not lethargic. We want to have desires to do things. But we all need wisdom. He says, think of the man 
who has all courage, and he's not balanced in his soul, right? We have this war against terror in this country, right? And we might have a brave soldier, right? Like my brother is in the military. And when he first got in, he had this, his soul was not balanced in this fact that he was more courageous than he was wise or had a good appetite. He, he was of the mentality, I'm going to Afghanistan, I'm bringing my Bowie knife, I'm taking out the Taliban. That's courageous. But what's going to happen if he does that? He's dead. That's not going to work. Right? So there's, you can't just have one of these at the expense of the others. You're only a just individual if there's proper balance. And Plato says the just individual will always have wisdom as the charioteer guiding your courage and your appetite. Because if you have wisdom guiding your courage and appetite, the horse will go straight. The chariot will go straight and you'll follow the path. So what we see with Plato's Republic is that for Plato, justice both in the city and in the individual is intrinsically and deeply tied to balance and harmony. Now this model of the soul, of the tripartite division of the soul, actually exists and everyone held it up to the time of Freud. Right? So we're talking about Plato writing 500, 450 years before Christ. To the time of Freud, everyone accepted this model of the soul, a tripartite division of the soul. Our very country was actually founded on the principles of Plato's Republic, a tripartite division of government. How will our society run correctly? When will it be just? Well, you ask a normal student, uh, a high school student, or even a college student in a civics class nowadays, which branch of our government is the most powerful? Which one has the most power? Which one is constitutionally granted the most power? And everyone will tell you, well, the president has the most power. So the executive branch has the most power. Well, which branch is supposed to have the most power? None, right? There's supposed to be a balance. There has to be a balance between the executive branch of government, the judicial branch of government, and the legislative branch of government. And when there is proper balance, we have harmony in the state. When there's not balance, we have discord and we have revolutions, right? We have um, certain historic moments in this country where there has been a movement from the balance of power to an imbalance between these three branches of government, and great injustice has snuck in because of that. Right? You can think of famous the Marbury v. Madison case. Right? Marbury v. Madison is a Supreme Court case where more or less to, to do no justice to the case. But what happens in Marbury v. Madison is basically the Supreme Court makes the decision that the Supreme Court gets to make the final decision. And you should be like, what? Well, there's no balance anymore, right? If the Supreme Court gets to make the decision that the Supreme Court gets to make the final decision, then do we have a balance of government anymore? No, you have one that has more power than the other two branches, and so great injustice sneaks in, right? This is a very, very deep principle, right? It's a triune principle, right? Plato doesn't recede into a monism where he says, well, in order for it to be just, we must all be absolutely equal in all things. That'd be a horrible thing for us to all be equal in all things, right? Aristotle constantly stresses what he calls the natural differentiation of character and the natural differentiation of humanity. To try to make all people equal is a great injustice. He says we should treat people equally when they deserve to be treated equally, right? I always ask my classes at the beginning of the semester, would you guys like for me to treat you equally in this class? And they say yes. And I say, okay, well, everyone's getting a C. You're like, well, that's not justice, right? That's the height of injustice, right? The F student's like, yes. 
And the A student is like, no. Why? Because we're not equal, right? We're in an equality-dense-driven air in this political climate that we have, right? Where we think that equality means everyone has to have the same amount of everything. No, no. Justice is when you are treated equally when you deserve to be treated equally. And Plato saw that. There has to be a balance between wisdom, courage, and appetite. In the soul, there has to be a balance. Or in the city, there has to be a balance between the three parts. Now, part of the genius of Plato is he sets up this whole ideal society, and I've just given you a, a very, very miniature sketch of the Republic. Um, you should read it on your own. It's top 10 things you need to read before you die. Um, right up there, fantastic. Um, but Plato, in his genius, critiques his own city at the, end of the, at the end of the Republic. He says, I've set up this just society, but these are the reasons it will never work. Right? That takes a lot of uh, lack of pride. It takes a lot of humility to say, I've set up this massive society, but you know what? It's never going to work because here where I screwed up. One, two, three reasons. It will never get off the ground. And the three major reasons Plato says his city will never get off the ground is one, we'll never have the communal raising of children. We'll never get this communal aspect that we desire. We'll never get it. He says women are never going to go through nine months of labor, suffering, and then their child comes out and just be like, yep, have the state raise it. He says that will never happen. And because of that, you're never going to get a deep community. Secondly, he says the city will never, ever take off because we'll never be able to overcome sexism. Plato was actually way ahead of his time when it comes to the issues of division of labor and sex. He thought that women should be treated equal to men when they deserve to be treated equal to men. When their capabilities were equal, treat them equal. When they weren't equal, don't treat them as equal. But what Plato saw was, he said, this is going to be a problem. We're never going to overcome this. Because clearly there's this differentiation between the sexes, which the modern world denies, but there is a difference between man and female. And because of that, there are certain tasks that will always be male-dominated and should always be male-dominated. And because of that, we're going to maybe skew the way we think things. And we'll never actually get to a purely unsexist or desexicized society. So he says, one, we'll never get this communal raising of children, we'll never get the sense of community we want, we'll never overcome sexism. And three, Plato says, in order to run this society, I'm going to need a philosopher king. And what he meant for a philosopher king was this guy who would be a philosopher and a ruler. But he says the problem with having a philosopher king is a philosopher is somebody that wants to study and search after wisdom and find truth. He has no interest in gaining power. So if a real philosopher is never going to want to be a king. And a real king is never going to want to be a philosopher. But that's the person that we need running the society. And in Plato's Republic, the philosopher king, if you remember back to last week, the philosopher king is the guy that escaped the cave. Remember the cave analogy? We live in the world of, sh of shadows. And the one person was able to escape the cave, get out into the real world, and see the metaphysical forms, see the truth, see the reality, know what justice was. And Plato thought there was a way that somebody could do this. And his way of getting the philosopher king would be through a series of education. And the education that the philosopher king goes through is outrageous. He goes through studying five years of dialectic. He goes through studying years of logic, 35 years of school in total for this philosopher king. And then once he's done through 35 years of school, he needs 15 years of practical experience in the job before he's allowed to rule. 
Maybe something we might like in our politicians as well, right? Maybe we want practical experience in it. But Plato said, after 50 years of education, then this person could finally ascend the throne and be the philosopher king and rule the society. Now, Plato said, because of these three things, we're never going to get the, the communal raising of children, we're never going to get the overcoming of sexism, and we're never going to get the philosopher king, we will never have a just society. Now, my question to all of you today is, well, where Plato even theoretically failed in his project, we have an answer here. We have a really, really good answer, too. Plato wanted a communal raising of children and a communal family. Well, what Plato failed to realize is, well, well he couldn't have realized it because he was before Christ, but the fulfillment of this idea is right here in the church. Right? We all come from different backgrounds. We all come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. But what do we have? We have unity as one together in a church. We actually have a community. And that community is marked by the sacraments, right? That's why the sacraments are so deeply important, right? You're baptized, and what is baptism? It's a sign and a seal of the covenant of God saying, you are part of this universal family. There's the communal aspect. You are under my covenant to be part of my family, right? And think about the, how deep the, the familial aspect of this goes. Not only are we marked by the sign of this universal family, we share a communal meal, right? The communal meal, right? We share, we come together and we share a communal meal in a communal house, right? And not only is this house right here, we have this wonderful thing, the church, where you can go anywhere in the world, anywhere in the country, and there it is, right? You're part of that. Not only do we have the communal raising, the communal meal, the communal sign, the communal house, we have a deep, deep, deep communal language, right? That's why this church is wonderful, because we're steeped in a deep liturgy. A lot of the modern churches um, in different branches of, of Christianity, they don't see the value of this communal aspect, so we don't have the communal language. But look through your bulletin and see what we do. Not only do we have the communal meal and the communal sign, we have a communal language. Peace be with you. Also with you. Right? We have a language, we have the doxology, we have these creeds that you memorize and they become, people will say, well, we don't want to do that because it becomes rote and it becomes boring. No, that's the language that this community, the communion of saints has. Now think about that, the communion of saints. When we come together and commune and when you participate in the liturgy that Pastor Vance has here right for you in the bulletin every week, you're participating not only with one another as a family, but a communion of saints. You're participating in the language that the saints have used for ages and ages, right? G.K. Chesterton in his wonderful work, Orthodoxy, also in that top 10 you gotta read before you die. Um, in his wonderful work, Orthodoxy, Chesterton says, tradition is the democracy of the dead, right? Tradition is the democracy of the dead. If you wanna call yourself a democratic person, well, what base of people do you really need to be in touch with? The dead, right? 99% of people that have ever been are now dead. So if you're democratic, you care about all people's views, but you don't study the past, you don't study history, you don't care about what the past, those in the past believe, you're the least democratic people of all, right? You only care about, well, this small little segment of people that are now living. Well, Chesterton says, that's a great injustice. If you want to call yourself a democratic, democratic nation, Tradition must be the democracy of the dead. I tell that to all of my students in any of my political philosophy classes, right? When you go to vote, you don't only care about what the people around you think, you should study long and hard what the people before you thought too. Why? 
Because that's the only way their voice matters. That's true democracy. Saying all the people that ever lived, they still matter. My voice represents theirs because I'm a democratic person. If you don't do that, you walk in and you just pull the lever and you have no idea you care about yourself individually, you're the least democratic person that's ever been. Or you care about this small speck of people. So you think about that wonderful thing we have in the church, right? This communal aspect. Uh, Bonhoeffer, uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in his wonderful, wonderful work, Life Together, he expresses this idea and he says, One is a brother to another only in Jesus Christ. I am a brother to another person through what Jesus Christ did for me and to me. The other person has become a brother to me through what Jesus Christ did for him. This fact that we are brethren only through Jesus Christ is of immeasurable significance. That's where we have family. We only have true communal family within the church, right? The smaller communities, our local community, even our own immediate family, that's a small representation of the communal family. And it's a wonderful thing too, right? Even those that deny um, the truth of the church, they have to look at it as a wonderfully successful social experiment, right? You can go anywhere in the world and you go and my wife gets sick and we're in Alabama. You show up to a church and they take care of you. Well, your family's everywhere. It's universal, right? And as the great hymn says, right, the church will never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end, right? All these other communities, they come and go. They fade. This community is eternal. So where Plato failed in his republic, we have the answer in the community. Now think about the second reason Plato said the republic would fail. We would never overcome sexism. We would never overcome sexism. What has the church done? Think about the incarnation. God becoming flesh. How does God become flesh? Of all the ways in the world, this is just something we take for granted because we hear it all the time. But God, the omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing being, chooses to become man how? Through a woman. And through a lowly Jewish woman. So in the incarnation, through Christ choosing to become man through a woman, what has he done? He's exalted womanhood in an immaculate and marvelous way, right? Womanhood is deeply exalted in the incarnation. Even further, Christianity, when Christ says, I come first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, I think women are included in both the category Jew and Gentile, right? He comes for all people. It's a universal religion where we have an overcoming of sexism. Now, the world won't see that. All right, the world will look at a verse or two in Timothy where it says, well, we have a differentiation of sexes here, right? There are certain things that women are prohibited from doing within the church, and the world's a sexist. Really? Um, I know Pastor Vance is a huge fan of Rodney Stark, the sociologist um, from Baylor University. And Rodney Stark, in his wonderful work, The Rise of Christianity, he notes that Christianity was so successful early on in recruiting women, and I'm going to quote him, amidst contemporary denunciations of Christianity as patriarchal and sexist, it is easily forgotten that the early church was so especially attractive to women that in 370, the emperor Valentinian issued a written order to Pope Damascus I requiring that Christian missionaries cease calling at the homes of pagan women. We have the emperor of Rome has to issue an order saying 
you Christian missionaries can no longer go to the women. Because when they went to the women, what happened? Wow, there's freedom within Christianity that the world did not offer. And that what, what the Pope or what the uh, emperor was worried about is that he, the Christianity was destroying the marketplace of religion. All of the women of the world were flocking to Christianity because under Rome, what did they have? Right? They, we're, we're living at a time when women had mandated abortions, right? And not just like, not the nice abortions that we have today where you can go in and cut up a baby inside and pull them out, right? They're going in with a hook and ripping them out. And then to protect the woman afterwards, they would, would cover the area in honey and sew, sew it shut. This is what's going on in Rome, and the women say, well, no, no, in Christ, you don't have to do that. So the women flock to the church. So we see in the church, we have this great communion of saints, overcomes Plato's problem. We have a huge overcoming of sexism. And then finally, what's the third reason Plato says the Republic will never happen? We're never going to get a philosopher king. A king will not want to be a philosopher, and a philosopher will not want to be a king. Now remember this king. This king for Plato, this philosopher king, had to be the one that escaped out of the cave of our reality, got in touch with the forms of ultimate reality, and then could come back and relay those forms to the people. I have found out what justice is, let me tell you. Well, he says that's never going to happen. And he was right, right, because the philosopher king could never get out of the cave. But what happened? The philosopher king came down into the cave, right? We have Christ, who was the forms. Christ is the form, right? That's why this language of the church is so powerful. Um, when I was a young boy, my father bribed me um, into memorizing the Westminster Shorter Catechism, right? And I still memorize it. I still have it memorized to this day because he paid me, I think, like 20 bucks to memorize it. And that's what he did. He said, memorize it and I'll give you 20 bucks. I was like, oh, I can buy a PlayStation. Great. And so that's the only reason I did. I had no real desire of my own to know these things. But the truth that you start to learn finally start to make sense later on in life, right? Like the, the catechism asks, what is God? It says, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, in his being, goodness, power, holiness, justice, and truth. Well, think about that. I had no idea what it meant at the time when I memorized it, but God is a being, God is goodness, right? We, we always anthropomorphize God because it's hard not to. What is God? We always think of, he's a good guy. Right? He's good. No, no, no. He's not a guy that does good things. He is goodness. Right? What is God? God is goodness. He is justice. The forms came to man. Justice came to man, as Pastor Van said today in the sermon. Right? There is no God behind Jesus. He came, and because he came, you could see his face. You can know what justice is. You can know the right way to act, and hence, you can be just. You can do what is right. Why? By following what he did. And that's where Plato's Republic is wonderful, right? He has all the pieces there. We need a community, but it can't be a forced community. Uh, Bonhoeffer will later go on to talk about how anytime in life together he does this, anytime that we try to force a community amongst people, we try to force it, it ends up degrading people. It ends up tearing them apart. People resist. Why? Because community has to be something that was freely given. It can't be something that's forced on you, right? Christ comes and in his sacrifice, he opens up community to all. It's a free community to everyone. It's not forced on people. And because of that, the community lasts forever. It doesn't tear it apart. Christ has overcome sexism, and Christ is the philosopher king who has come to us and shown us truth. So Plato's Republic's fantastic. 
but it's only with the light of Christ looking back on the Republic that you can see, oh wow, we can have it perfectly, we can have the ideal society. Yes, Christ's bride. This is the society that Plato sought for. Um, that's all I got for you today. Any questions? <laughs> questions at all? <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I go fast. I was worried because we had the shorter time today, so I might, I might have sped up my time. Yeah. I would say certainly, right? A just community would be made if everyone had the proper balance of wisdom, courage, and appetite. Um, but we have to think about what that is, right? We have to have wisdom guiding us. And what is wisdom, right? John calls God the incarnation, the logos, or the wisdom of the world, right? So if you have Christ as the wisdom guiding your chariot, and everyone chose to do that, oh, sure, we have a great society. Is that theoretically possible? Or historically possible. Well, sure, in, at, at the Armageddon, at, you know, when, at, at the end time, when Christ ushers in his kingdom finally, um, but temporarily? No, of course not, um, would be my answer. But. Any other questions? It's a dense, it's a dense work. Yeah. So you mentioned how um, Plato's Yeah. Sure. So what I'm curious about, and I just thought about that way, is um, did, was there a, was it just a shift in the, the terms? I can see some correspondences between Plato and Freud, but was there also? Would you say there was a shift in just how we understand ourselves more fundamentally that came with Freud? Pre-Freud, like, but at that time, at the height of, towards the end of the Enlightenment, right, we start to have the world moving from a metaphysical understanding of ourselves, right, ourselves is grounded beyond this world, to a material version of ourselves, which you start to see manifest itself in guys like Freud. So if all we are is matter, and if all we are is atoms, then we have to understand ourselves atomically, right, we have to understand what's going on in our brains or in our you know, our conscious and subconscious, this battling as being some sort of a neurological function within us. Um, so I think Freud's is, there are definitely are similarities when you study Freud, and I haven't done a lot. I read the It and the Ego a while back, and, and his interpretations of dreams, which I found it pedantic and, and pretty juvenile. Um, but when you look at it, you see traces and resemblance of this. And that's because, as I've talked earlier on this course, I believe Freud, although I don't agree with anything he said, he was in a way searching for truth, right? And when we're searching for truth, we're gonna get close sometimes to what the real truth is because Freud, although he denied Christ, was made imago Dei, right? He was made in God's image. So he bared the ability of God to reason. So when Freud reasoned and tried to figure out these things, even in denying Christ, like Plato, Plato wasn't a Christian man, um, he was some sort of a mystic, but you get close and you start to see these things, but the fulfillment you see is always lacking. Um, it doesn't have any weight, right? It doesn't carry any thunder like Plato's idea does, right? This is right. 
this is wrong. Um, but there's definitely traces in Freud of Plato, for sure. Freud read Plato volumelessly. Anyone else? All right, let's close in prayer. Would you close in prayer for us because you're just here for the one week? Sure. Thanks. Father, we thank you that, uh, that you give us understanding, that you enlighten our minds to uh, ask questions about our world, and uh, that you, further than that, that you have given us truth in the form of Jesus Christ, that you who embody um, life and truth and justice uh, came to us so that we might know it. Uh, we who would be lost in darkness, uh, like in the cave, uh, not knowing anything. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us life in Christ. Help us to walk with you, uh, not just on our own, but as lights in the world, as conduits for your glory and your truth to people around us who, who still are in darkness. Do this work by your spirit and help us to give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.